Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear how scientists are collaborating to create replacement bone basically from scratch. In our case, we're hopeful that we can use CT imaging or MRI imaging to design these new bone structures. Then we'll talk with an emergency physician about falls after a recent survey showed one in four older adults fell at least once in the last year. When you look at older adults, um, older adults are much more prone to injure themselves from minor falls. Whereas when we look at younger adults who come and injured to the emergency department, you're looking at things like higher velocity impact. And we'll discuss the importance of science and research with a biochemist and molecular biologist. We're actually uh, highly successful in, in curing uh, several forms of childhood leukemia now. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, an exploration of health, medicine, and science from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, an emergency physician talks about falls, then we'll explore the importance of science and research with a biochemist and molecular biologist, but first, we'll hear about replacement bone that scientists in Syracuse are creating using stem cells and a 3D printer. Jason Horton, an assistant professor of both orthopedic surgery and cell and developmental biology at Upstate Medical University, and Pranav Soman, an assistant professor of biomedical and chemical engineering at Syracuse University, are working together to create a more natural alternative to the metallic implants that are used today to replace diseased and damaged bones. They're using 3D printing to develop polymer-based biodegradable implants, and they're both here today to tell us more about their exciting research. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. So this seems like we're in the age of the Jetsons. If we're to the point where if we need, say, a knee replacement or something, that we can build one with a 3D printer and use it. How close are we to that? Well, I think it's still a long way on the horizon, but we're definitely chipping away at it. And so, you know, maybe 10 to 15 years is not an unreasonable expectation. Um, Right now we're working at a very basic level trying to work out the technology um, end of it and the manufacturing end of it. And that's where Pranav really comes in to uh, bring his expertise. Um, and I work more on the bone and cell biology side. So it sounds like a really good collaboration, people from both different sciences. Yes, I think it is. Uh, it has been fantastic. We have been working on this for the past year or so. And uh, yeah, I bring the expertise of uh, printing, uh, I guess, bioplastics and biogels where you mix cells with gels and try to I guess grow bone in a in a structural cage and it has been fantastic uh, so far. So how did you come up just with the idea of using a 3D printer to build like it's the scaffolding right and then of adding human cells to that how did you come up with the concept? Well I think the idea has been out there for a long time but the technology hasn't really been available until fairly recently. Um, Now, I've only been here at Upstate for a little over a year and a half now, and one of the first people that I met when I came to Upstate was Pranav, who, you know, introduced himself, uh, you know, very shortly after I got here, and he says, you know, I have this great technology, 
do you think this might have an application in some of the work that you're doing and some of your research interests? And, you know, one of the big problems in orthopedics in general is how to help bone heal better to become stronger and restore function. And so with my background in cell biology and, and bone stem cell biology specifically, I, you know, I've always had this idea that maybe if we could activate stem cells in some sort of way to help improve bone healing, that would be fantastic. But one of the barriers is how do you get those stem cells to stay in place? You can't just inject them because they're sort of a fluid and you know, a bone needs to have some mechanical strength. And so Pranav comes and brings this technology where he can essentially create a rigid structure in any shape you, you, you want. Um, in our case, we're hopeful that we can use CT imaging or MRI imaging to design these new bone structures and so really make it a patient-specific uh, graft unit that we can create. So that's the long-term goal. But um, as far as bringing it from the research side, it's been just a really great uh, collaboration of you know really different fields coming together on a common goal. So, um, Pranav, tell me about 3D printing in, in this in polymer that's a plastic, right? Yeah. So how does that work? If you're working on a scaffolding, you have to draw... Right. So I think uh, so. the bio 3D uh, printing is very, very similar to normal 3D uh, printing, which we hear often, right, where <clears throat> the idea is that you have a three-dimensional model which you create uh, either by some kind of modeling software or you can get that from CT scans, MRI scans, things like that. And you take that model, you slice it up into uh, scans or uh, 2D sort of uh, tool paths, and you can move a stage, a very uh, precise stage in X, Y, Z or three dimensions according to the, those paths. And you can basically stack uh, these slices on top of each other layer by layer, and then we basically can recreate or create this 3D uh, structure based on the scan which we have. So the bio comes only... It's exactly the same thing as 3D uh, printing, but the bio part comes where we can either use bioplastics, which are approved by the FDA, or you can use some kind of living cells mixed in a soft gel, which is compatible and things like that. But essentially it is the exact same thing. Okay, so, so go ahead. I was gonna say the analogy that I like to use is it's kind of like building a house in that um, we're building the framework and that's that's the 3D printing unit that Pranav comes in. So the structure, the shape of the unit that we're trying to assemble is built by the 3D printing process. And then my part is to come in and, and sort of bring the cells and, and hydrogel that Pranav has also worked um, extensively with and use that gel full of uh, stem cells to sort of fill in the spaces or you know to, to fill in the foundation of those walls that were built by the 3D printer. So these are stem cells, as a, these are not bone yet. They're These not are... yet bone, okay. exactly, exactly. So we're working on um, identifying new sources of these bone stem cells. Um, and it's important to point out that these stem cells are present in the bone marrow and a few other tissues throughout, um, throughout your life, and they're what um, are activated to cause bone to heal. They're stimulated to produce bone healing. Um, and so we're looking for ways to activate those cells or to isolate them and sort of instruct them to become bone cells while housed in this hydrogel 3D printed um, structural unit. And so that's a, that's a real hot topic, but also a real challenge in 
identifying those cells, producing enough of them to make a, a functional bone unit, and then giving them the instructions to become a bone cell. And so that's really been you know, the focus of my, my training and my research is how to instruct a relatively primitive cell to become a bone cell. Okay, and relatively primitive, would the cells come from like a cord blood or? So that's, that's a, a very new technology that um, we've just started looking into um, with a, a grant from the cord blood center here at Upstate. Um, where we're looking at, so these stem cells um, in general are called mesenchymal stem cells. And so they're stem cells in the sense that they're multipotent. And by multipotent, what I mean is that they have to, the capacity to become several different types of mature tissue cells. So in the case of these mesenchymal stem cells, they can become cartilage cells which line the joints and provide sort of a frictionless surface. They be can become bone cells and form the mineralized component of bone, but they can also become fat cells which live inside the bone marrow and they have some really interesting but poorly understood physiologic functions. Um, so suffice it to say, we're looking at ways to identify these mesenchymal stem cells. Um, traditionally, and most of the work has been done looking at bone marrow, but now also having cord blood um, as a sort of novel source that's readily available um, and will probably help us with a lot of the immune rejection complications that might be had if we were to use stem cells from one person and try to implant them in another person. Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air talking about new ways to produce bone products to replace diseased or damaged bones in the human body with Syracuse University Assistant Professor Pranav Soman and Upstate Assistant Professor Jason Horton. Um, Pranav, the, the scaffolding the, the, uh, that's made with the uh, 3D printer, what happens to that once it's in the body? Does it stay? Yeah, so there are various <coughs> sort of types of scaffolding uh, that is based on the bioplastic we choose. Uh, in our work, we have primarily worked with the FDA-approved plastic called uh, polycaprolactone PCL. And the way it works is, so we use, so 3D printing has lots of various uh, techniques which can be used to make these sliced 3D uh, constructs. And what the one which we use uh, with PCL is what's called an extrusion-based approach, where we basically extrude this, we make spools or plastic sort of spools of these PCL, and then we extrude those spools through a, a heater, which sort of semi-melts it, and then we have a stage, which is again controlled by a 3D scan, and it's moved in XYZ, and we can make this a 3D gauge. And this PCL, it can last, basically you can tune the properties of how fast or slow they can degrade if you implant them inside the body. But typically the amount of time is about eight months to a year and a half. And so the hope is that the cells during that time would be able to take take over. Exactly. So so that, that provides, the, the scaffold structure provides stability during that time that the bone cells... Um, are differentiating, or I should say the stem cells are differentiating into bone cells um, and then start building new bone tissue on top of it. And I think a really important point is that the PCL is bioresorbable. And by that, it means it's slowly degraded over time and absorbed in a non-toxic fashion in, in the, um, by the body. And so this, a similar plastic is used for things like um, resorbable sutures. Say if you were to have an operation, get some stitches, and rather than take them out, they just sort of dissolve away fairly quickly. And there's other um, devices that are used in orthopedics specifically as far as um, 
what are called staples or nails that um, are used in surgical procedures to hold pieces of tissue together, especially in reconstruction, reconstructive procedures. So it's a, it's a, the biocompatibility of PCL is really well understood and characterized. Um, and so that's why we've chosen to go with that as our starting material. So how far along are you? Is this being tested? So we have, uh, I mean, we can sort of print these hybrid uh, scaffolds, which is basically, again, the PCL cage, uh, and which is embedded with the stem cells with gels. And we have tested, we have started to implant those in uh, animals, uh, and we have some exciting uh, results uh, so far, but it is still in the preliminary stage. Very early. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it, so we're, you know, we're trying to incorporate a couple of things to bring back the building a house analogy. So um, one of the important things to helping bone heal is to establish a vascular circuit through the bone tissue. And so some of the really exciting engineering work that Pranav has been doing is working on ways to build vascular channels or, again, to bring back the house analogy pipes. Um, and so we're working on ways to create these pipes through this 3D matrix in addition to the rigid structure. Um, and then um, take some vascular stem cells that line the inside of the blood vessels and are really important for communication with the blood cells, or excuse me, with the bone cells, um, and sort of build those into this um, bone unit so that we can um, have essentially a readily perfusable um, bone graft structure that can um, supply, has a blood supply and can uh, bring nutrients and clear waste to the cells within the bone construct that we're creating. Um, and then we just recently uh, submitted a paper, um, again, bringing back the analogy of a house where we've um, put nanowires into the hydrogel matrix um, for the purpose of conducting um, various bioelectric signals through the bone matrix. So we're really looking at it as we're building the structure, we're putting in the plumbing, and now we're putting in the wiring too. This is so fascinating. And bo both of you are relatively young. Did you imagine or dream about this in I don't know, in high school when you're coming up and thinking about what you want to do with your life? Did you? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, my background is uh, like more engineering. And so okay. I always used to like to build things, but I was working on cars and engines and things like mm -hmm. that. And uh, over the years, I have transformed into working on bio uh, applications. And you, Jason? So, yeah, so I, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess to, to wind the clock back, I, I had visions of becoming a high school teacher at one point. Um, and then through college, you know, just different classes, I got really excited about um, anthropology, um, which is, I think, where my interest in, in the skeleton started, um, but also in linguistics. And so I was, I think, through college, I was sort of all over the place. And then um, after graduating, I worked for a few years as a, as a research technician and, um, you know, that was the time when I really fell in love with the idea of being, you know, number one, just being a scientist and having my own project, um, but that I had the opportunity to, to do my graduate work in bone biology and skeletal development. Um, and so that was really exciting, just studying the, the process of how um, bones develop from embryonic life and then how they're maintained um, as we age. Um, but to say I ever thought that I'd be building a new bone essentially from scratch um, really has only come into my mind as a, as a reality 
um, is even a possibility in the last year, really, since meeting Pranav. Wow, interesting. It was so fascinating, and I hope both of you will come back as your research progresses and um, kind of keep us updated. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air uh, with Assistant Professors Pranav Soman from Syracuse University and Jason Horton from Upstate Medical University. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much. Next up, why falls are the leading cause of injury among New Yorkers age 65 and older on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Excellus Blue Cross and Blue Shield provided some statistics recently about falls, showing that one in four adults age 65 and older fell at least once in the last year, and that 40% of those who fell experienced an injury. Here to talk more in depth about falls is Dr. William Palo, an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine, as well as an Associate Professor of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Palo. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, so the survey about falls also said that falls are the leading cause of injury among New York adults age 65 and older, and that one in five falls cause serious harm, such as a broken bone or a head injury. Has that been your experience in the emergency department at Upstate? Uh, yeah, I believe it has. Um, when you look at older adults, um, older adults are much more prone to injure themselves from minor falls. Whereas when we look at younger adults who come and injured to the emergency department, you're looking at things like higher velocity impacts, so motor vehicle collisions, fall from height. Uh, often in elderly individuals, those older than 65, we can see injuries just from falls from standing. So uh, that- Just from getting dizzy or something? Or it can be from getting dizzy. It can or just be, stumbling. It can be from stumbling. Um, so there's a number of different factors when you get older that can contribute to the severity of a fall. So you tend to be put on more medications as you get older. So things like mm. anticoagulants, uh, you tend to have problems with bone density as you get older. So things like osteoporosis. So when you look at a young individual, say a 25 year old who falls from standing, you might wind up with bruises and scrapes. When you come in and you're 70 years old and you have osteoporosis and you fall from standing, I worry about very different things. Things like hip fractures, even cervical spine fractures or neck fractures from just a minor fall from standing. In addition, if you're on medications that thin your blood, so if you're on Coumadin or any of the novel anticoagulants or even sometimes aspirin, I worry about bleeding even from a minor head injury. So very different spectrum of disease that we see in older individuals from even minor falls than we do in young individuals. And I bet recovery is different for the ages too. Absolutely. Because of those same factors that we talked about, comorbidity, what I mean by that is other diseases associated with um, that age group. So whether or not we're talking about a concomitant COPD or somebody has a heart condition or a heart valve and has to take an anticoagulant, all of those things contribute to making recovery more difficult. The more concomitant disease you have, the harder it is to recover in the long run. Okay. So um, what do emergency providers need to be considering when they see a patient of any age who's fallen? Like what are the types of questions? Sure. So 
we kind of break it down into different parts of the body. So when you fall, one of the things you're always going to be asked is about your head first. So we're gonna start asking you questions regarding your brain. We're going to ask you questions like, did you lose consciousness? Were you awake the whole time? And do you remember the event? In addition, if you don't, we like to have somebody who was there, maybe that witnessed it, that can tell us how you fell and why you fell. Because some people might not remember if they lost or no, right? And you can that can be either because they passed out, which was the reason that they they fell, or because they hit their head and they're now amnestic to the fall. So amnestic, we try to, am, amnestic is uh, no memory of the no event. memory. Okay. So from a concussion, by way of example, what we're trying to tease out in essence is: Did you fall because you slipped and stumbled, which makes us think about one thing, or did you fall because you passed out, which brings us down a whole different pathway uh, of of issues? So we're teasing that out with some questions: Do you remember the event? Did you? feel your heart racing before? Did you feel like someone who's pulling curtains across your eyes? And then afterwards, we're then asking about that consequence. Did you hit your head? Are you on a blood thinner? Do you remember? Do you have a headache now? Have you been vomiting since then? Did somebody say you looked like you had a seizure when you fell? We also think about seizures, so that's going to come into play as well. Then after we move away from the head, we start asking you questions about the rest, the consequences of the rest of it. Did you fall on an outstretched hand and now you have wrist pain? Did you fall onto your right side and now you're having trouble moving your hip and you're having pain in your, in your groin area to suggest a hip fracture? So we kind of tease out the different things that you might do. Now, when we're subdividing again into young people, we start thinking about some higher impact requires, so more velocity, more force requires to damage bone, damage tissue. When you're older, even falls from standing make me worry. A young person, I might, I worry a lot. You fall off a ladder, you fall off your height from a ladder. If you're six feet tall, you fall off a six foot ladder. I worry a great deal about you. Um, it doesn't mean I don't worry about it if you fall off a four foot ladder. It just means that that kind of velocity is typically required in a young, healthy individual. An older individual fall from standing can break a hip, can cause a cervical spine fracture. So I'm teasing it out based upon where you live in your age group and how much your bone density or how I'm predicting your bone density to be. Does your, um, does the patient's size matter too? If someone's sort of heavy, is um, that? In some ways, yeah. Actually, it, kind of the opposite of that sometimes. Because when you look at a body type that's associated with low bone density, an elderly, frail, skinny female actually makes me think a lot about poor bone density. Sometimes that can happen in, uh, so when we're looking at overweight individuals we'll worry about poor more uh poor mobility and that can come with deconditioning and then when we're talking about recovery i worry about recovery because that poor muscle function that may come from deconditioning uh, and being overweight i kind of worry about uh the recovery in the long run but when we're looking at the type of person that you look at that would remind you of somebody who could break something very quickly from a simple fall a kind of a, a, a skinny individual who's elderly we think about low bone density because that's classically associated with osteoporosis so you basically have to find out if the fall is the thing or if it's a symptom right. of the thing, that's right. something more serious. Right. So when we look at it, we're kind of subdividing into two things. We're looking at what caused the fall and then consequences of the fall. What caused the fall can be anything, like I said, from passing out. And that has a whole big another discussion to have of what caused passing out, most of which are benign, some of which are very serious, versus tripped and fall, stumbled, fell. Um, by way of example, we see individuals who uh, are uh, nursing home care or... Um, potentially have some mobility issues and they need some help getting around, transferring from one to the other, going from a bed to a bedpan, going from a bed to uh, get up and walking. So um, getting out of a wheelchair into a chair, we see falls from those kind of movements too, those complex movements that are uh, require other individuals to help them. 
It sounds a lot more complicated than just saying, you know, a fall. It seems like that'd be an open and shut thing, but obviously it's not. Now, when you talk about frail individuals and a fall, Mm -hmm. a simple fall turning into a broken hip or something, talk to me a little bit about what that might mean for the patient individually, because that's often the beginning of a long process, right? Sure. Um, Hip fractures, by way of example, are not a monolithic entity. There's multiple different types of hip fractures, and there's some that need surgery, some that do not. But regardless of whether or not this is a surgical hip fracture or a non-surgical hip fracture or a pelvic fracture, by way of example, whether you're having surgery or whether you're not having surgery, um, this is going to necessitate a rehab process and a getting used to where you are now process, which is going to be a long recovery period. Um, whether or not you've just had surgery and you've gotten your you've gotten a, um, a prosthesis or somebody has put a, a rod into your bone to fix a fracture or whether or not you were told that this is a non-operative fracture and nobody needed to have surgery, you're still going to need rehab, getting used to walking again, and it's a protracted process. To let the bones heal. To let the bones heal. And then if it's not just letting the bones heal, it's then developing the muscle strength around to make up for the fractured bone. Uh, So it requires a good physical therapist, a social worker, and the kind of long-term care afterwards. It's not necessarily that you wind up in long-term care, but it's certainly a protracted recovery when compared to some other injuries, regardless whether or not you've had surgery or not. And then again, like you mentioned, there may be other comorbidities, other uh, issues that a person has underlying aside from the fall and the fracture and everything so all right well uh uh, this is upstate's health link on air i'm your host amber smith talking with dr william palo a doctor of emergency medicine at upstate university hospital um what are some of the conditions that make people over age 65 prone to falls now i know we mentioned they could be on a bunch of different medications that have different effects but are there other things that um sure Let's start with medication since you brought that up. One of the things that we see, when you get older, a lot of individuals have high blood pressure. So we give medications to regulate blood pressure. And one of the things that can do as well, since we're regulating blood pressure, trying to reduce blood pressure, that can come with reducing blood pressure in situations where it might not be called for. Too much. Too much. Well, not too much positional. So what you can get is something called orthostatic hypotension with a number of the medications that we give individuals. What that is, is you lay down and your brain gets used to a certain blood pressure in that laid down position. What you're used to afterwards is just getting up and going about your day. What can happen is you get up and you're not able, because of the medications we give you to compensate for the sudden change in gravity to your brain, your brain doesn't get enough oxygen. Your brain is very smart and says, I'm not getting enough oxygen. It's probably because of this gravity. We shouldn't fight it anymore. So let's lay down. And sometimes that happens forcefully. So in addition to the medications, as you get older, your nervous system changes. So we see some changes in individuals. And we look around 50% of individuals over the age of 65 without any medications have this same kind of condition where they get lightheaded and dizzy from going from laying down or seated to standing quickly. So one of the things to mitigate for that is to take your time when getting up and allow yourself to acclimate to each new position. Um, So that's one of the things we see. Also, as you get older, you potentially have things like stroke, um, potentially other comorbidity that may make it more difficult for you to navigate yourself in space. Some people actually have poor night vision as they get older, so walking around at night, we see frequent falls and stumbles at night, uh, falling downstairs from being unable to kind of situate yourself. And your ability to kind of tell where your leg is in space and where you are in space, what we call proprioception, can also be diminished as you get older as well. So those types of things combined with any of the number of comorbidities of getting older, whether it's not a previous stroke, uh, weakness, deconditioning, can also result in falls, mechanical or otherwise. 
We've had other guests on that have talked about some of like the household hazards too, you know, throw rugs or whatever. So yeah. there's environmental, I guess, issues as well. Um, are falls seasonal? Do you see sort of a spike depending on the time of year in the emergency department? Or I would say the types of falls are seasonal. Um, so by way of example, in the summertime, we see a lot of falls off of ladders because a lot more individuals are going out and doing things around their house and, and uh, painting and whatnot. We see falls off of roofs more uh, in the summertime. We do see falls off roofs in wintertime for people who still go out and try to get snow They'll off their the roof. Snow. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll fall off the roof. In the wintertime, the type of falls we see tend to be, uh, in addition to the standard falls that we see, we see a lot of falls on ice, a lot of mechanical falls outside of the home from uh, ice that wasn't seen or from a snow patch that, that one falls in. So it it's we see falls year-round, uh, but often I can kind of predict what the fall is from based upon the, the year. Uh, I mean, the type of, the, 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 the season of the, the year. The time of the season? Yeah. So if there's a big ice storm, do you sort of know or expect that you're, likely to get yeah okay. we see and uh going to the car you go you, your car's in the driveway you you snowblowed your uh your driveway and still underneath that is that layer of ice that the snowblower won't get and you go out to your car and you slip and you fall on your way out to the car so yeah we certainly expect that particularly living in a climate like this in the winter well taking this from a patient's point of view if a patient if someone falls how do they know if they need to go to the emergency department sure. so again subdividing into the way we did we're looking at consequence of fall and and reason for fall so let's do that first so okay. reason for fall if you tripped and fell you're a young individual and you have no pain and you just i don't know that you have any reason to come to the emergency department if you're a young individual and you potentially passed out uh, and you don't have a long history of passing out you didn't have a good reason to pass out it wasn't because you saw blood it wasn't because you felt like you had to urinate or or what have you then we kind of maybe start worrying about you a little bit maybe you want to come see us um Older individuals who pass out, we always want to see. You should always come to the emergency department. If you've passed out and you're over the age of 65, I think that necessitates an emergency department visit. Um, once we've subdivided for causes, then we're looking at consequences. So anybody who's on a blood thinner that falls should probably come to the emergency department or their primary care provider to be checked out. Urgent care, emergency department, just a physician uh, if you're on a blood thinner. The rates of having bleeding into your brain or bleeding um, into your uh, from the fall even after a minor fall is much, much higher if you're on something like Coumadin or Rivaroxaban or Plavix or any of these medications. So we usually want to see those people. I would tell you invariably you should come to the emergency department for that. Afterwards, then you're asking yourself, did I hit my head? Did I lose consciousness? Do I remember the events? Okay, I'm not worried about my brain potentially. Um, do I have pain in a joint? Do I have pain in my hip? Do I have pain in my wrist when I fell out onto my hand and I tried to brace my fall? Once you're looking at your kind of risk stratifying yourself saying, did I have a dangerous type of fall? Um, anytime you fall greater than your height, you should probably come to the emergency department to be seen. Then you start asking yourself, do I have some of these other sequelae, in other words, consequences of the fall? Did I fall off a ladder onto my butt? Now I have some numbness going down one of my legs and I'm worried about my back. Did I fall onto my feet and now it hurts to step and I worry about my heels? Um, so those types of things we want to look out for. Once you've kind of said it's no longer a dangerous fall, but the consequences of the fall I'm concerned about, whether it's my wrist, my hip, my, my spine, or my head, I think then you want to come to the emergency department. Minor slip and fall, the young individuals get up and you walk and you walk it off like you did when you were in high school. I think that's totally fine. They can probably do that. Yeah. Um, once they're at the emergency department, mm -hmm. um, can you do can you take care of them in the emergency department in terms of casting and if they need sure. a cast or if they... Yeah. Um, so 
you come to an emergency department like Upstate, you have a number of different services, right? We have orthopedics on hand, we have emergency providers on hand. Uh, so you have all of those services here. But even if you go to your local area hospital, your emergency department provider, uh, emergency physicians are trained to do all of this. Um, so you have, we're trained to reduce fractures were trained if you had a dislocation to put those back in and then splint you and then send you out to see an orthopedist for follow-up but yeah in the emergency department you can expect to have all your lacerations cared for your skin tears cared for your concussion cared for um, and all of the care that you would need for your fall to be taken care of in the emergency department uh, you know the benefit of a place like upstate which is a tertiary care facility is you have orthopedists in the hospital all the time and whatnot mm -hmm. not every hospital has that luxury because of where they are but what was wonderful about the specialty of emergency medicine is that we can take care of any of your problems regardless of your age or presenting complaint. Well terrific this has been very good advice. My guest has been emergency medicine specialist Dr. William Palo from Upstate's Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate HealthLink on air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up, Define Death and Taxes, or a 7 to 1 payoff. Well, folks, here's the catch to changing our lives for the better. In order to get better, we usually, not always, always, but usually have to do something different. And our brains are hardwired to like doing same old, same old, because, well, it worked pretty well up till now. I mean, we're still alive, aren't we? So why mess with success? And if old stability brain doesn't stop us and we actually start trying something outside our normal comfort zone, our bodies send up smoke signals. Hey, this is hard. Yowie, yowie, don't do this anymore. So we stop. Or our mind starts talking to us like, better not do that. That's too new and different. Let's stop now before something bad happens, like looking funny to other people or dying. And we get scared, and you guessed it, stop. Been there, done that, huh? <laughs> anyway, some psychology types figured out that to change, we had to feel that the benefits outweighed the cost at least two to one, preferably three or four to one. Now, the no excuses anymore punchline. Some brand new research has just shown that the benefit of running, even really slow jogging, outweighs the cost of the discomfort of moving a little faster by seven to one. Yes, yay, you heard me. Specifically, for every hour you run, you live seven hours longer. Yep, seven to one. Now your brain is probably already saying, yeah, but you know, you'll wear out your knees and get disabled and feel miserable every last one of those extra hours. So don't do it. <laughs> Not true. Actually, some other really cool research found the more people ran over 10 years, the less disability and less pain they had. Yep, less pain, less disability. So you'd actually be able to do the fun stuff in those extra years. But let's say living longer and more fun aren't your cup of tea. <laughs> then let me bribe you. Free money. 
The government will pay you Social Security checks for all the extra time you live. Free money. And unless you're wealthy, you won't even have to pay taxes on it. Now, if more life, less pain, less disability, and free money don't get you putting one foot in front of the other at a slightly faster pace than usual, well, you're probably dead already. <laughs> and you should ask somebody to turn off your radio or podcaster to be good to the environment. I'm Rich, running fool no more, O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Coming up next, the importance of science and research. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today I'm talking with a professor from Upstate about the importance of funding for scientific research. Dr. Steve Haynes is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology. Thank you for being here, Dr. Haynes. You're welcome. So I wanted to start off, give me three examples of um, things that the public can thank biomedical research for. Okay, the first and most uh, obvious one is the vaccines and antibiotics. So we've uh, pretty much eradicated a number of infectious diseases like, for instance, smallpox uh, has been totally eradicated from the earth, in fact. Um, it used to kill over 2 million people a year, and now we've uh, been able to control that and along with other debilitating diseases like typhoid, polio, measles, tetanus, and other kinds of infectious disease. Um, so that's one example. Another is that we're actually uh, highly successful in, in curing uh, several forms of childhood leukemia now, which wasn't the case 20 or 30 years ago. And uh, I guess finally, the, one of the obvious things for everybody is that our lifespan is now 15 to 20 years longer than it was for, say, a generation ago or a generation or two ago. So um, I think we can thank biomedical research and public health efforts for all that. Okay, those are good examples. Now, tell me how you, what what you do here at Upstate in biomedical research. What are, what are you involved in? Well, so first of all, I, I teach uh, basic science to medical students, um, first year students, and I also teach uh, graduate students who are getting their PhD, and I serve as a mentor for those those students. Um, but my main goal, my main um, effort, is is running a research lab, biomedical research. What um, do you have any projects right now that you can explain? Well, so our, our basic um, area is molecular genetics. So that's understanding the mechanism of, of how genes work. And um, specifically, we're interested in understanding how, how the information in, contained in the DNA is transcribed into RNA and then how those genes work in, uh, in controlling embryonic development. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I understand that you and um, some of your colleagues from Upstate attended the March for Science in Washington back um, on Earth Day, April 22nd. What was, what was that all about? What was that for? That's right. So, well, this was a, a major nonpartisan event, probably the biggest um, 
gathering of scientists in history, actually, throughout the, the country and the world. So there were marches in something like 500 cities around, uh, around the um, globe. And we went to Washington. This was basically a non, nonpartisan event uh, to show support for science um, and to try to get the public to appreciate the value of science to their, you know, to their everyday lives and health. And, and also, actually, to try to sway the representatives who are currently um, negotiating budgets for scientific funding. So is that what motivated? Well, so, yeah, the, my personal motivation to get out of the lab and actually make the effort to go down there was to um, uh, basically support the idea of uh, funding for science, which is really uh, lagging in the, in the last decade or so. So since... I think since nineteen uh, since two thousand three, funding has been more or less flat for the National Institutes of Health, which supports biomedical research, which we do here. Um, and in in real dollars, it's been a decline of about almost twenty five percent. So there's really a lack of of funding for for basic science in in the biomedical area and, and other areas. So this is federal funding um, that you're talking about. From, from the government? Yes, this is federal funding. So why is federal research funding so important? So, um, well, yeah, let me backtrack for a second and say that um, in addition to the, f- the flat funding over the last decade or more, um, the current administration has actually proposed um, pretty massive cuts to basic research. So that's a, another motivational reason for, go- for going down to... Uh, to the March for Science is because um, about a 20% cut for next year's budget has been proposed. So a 20% cut, if you're a researcher working <laughs> on a project, I mean, this could kill some projects. Right. So this would basically mean almost no new projects would be funded, and those projects that are already funded and ongoing would have uh, would be restricted. And, and so it would really stifle innovation in, in biomedical research. And a lot of labs would end up closing down. It's, it's that serious. Wow. Well, um, does private industry or private funds play a role in, um, in this? So private industry does spend a tremendous amount on research, but it really can't take the place of federal funding. So, um, for example, private industry doesn't really want to take the high risks that some of the basic research sponsored by the federal government is able to take. So, um, they shy away from very risky, long-term uh, research, which doesn't always have um, – it, it's hard to bring to market. It's difficult to patent. Um, there's a whole host of reasons why they don't like to necessarily fund very early research, which is really where the government comes in. So um, I would argue that um, part of the reason that um, the United States is, is a leader, a world leader, is, is because of basic science funding since World War II. Um, very, very strong government support for science. And um, you can think of a, a lot of, uh, of the progress we've made, say, in electronics, communications, computers, cell phones, the Internet, GPS. It goes on and on, medical imaging. So all these things um, came out of basic research funding that was not really – it was capitalized on later by companies, but the initial work and the science behind it is all federally funded. It had to start – Somewhere right. with the funding. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Steve Haynes, a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at Upstate Medical University. 
Uh, we're talking about the importance of funding for scientific research. So uh, what do you think needs to happen to ensure um, funding that, that stays, that's good for the long, for the long haul? Um, well, actually, can I add one more, a couple more things about the importance of federal funding um, and then why we need to, to keep that um, sustained? Um, another really important um, role it plays is in, in education. So industry, uh, although they, they benefit by having us graduate um, doctorate, doctoral candidates, they don't actually pay for the funding for students. So that's generally federally funded um, uh, in an in indirect kind of way. So although the students may be coming to upstate to get their PhD or to other universities around the country, um, <clears throat> the research is actually not funded by the university. So for example, my research, um, it, uh, upstate pays my salary and gives me lab space and um, equipment but the actual research is funded by external grants, say from the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation. So in order for me to take students into my lab, I have to be grant funded. So without that federal funding, we're basically not going to cha uh, train the next generation of scientists. Oh, wow. So even though the schools, um, you know, the schools depend, uh, their laboratories depend on federal funding for, for um, for the research um, funding and to pay the, the trainees in the labs. So that's the other really important thing that only federal funding can do and private funding, uh, uh, corporate funding doesn't really take care of. Okay. So is there, do, is there a solution to make this more of a, something that would be stable from year to year, that funding would not fluctuate? So that's a really good point. The stability is really important to maintain um, laboratory uh, research without interruption so you don't lose all the expertise um, from year to year. One thing is to get the public behind it. So, I mean, our congressional representatives are the ones who pass the budgets and are able to, um, you know, generally keep science labs funded um, by including uh, reasonable um, sort of uh, inflationary adjusted um, increases. Um, so, Basically, if, if the public understands and appreciates the importance of science, that will translate into our elected representatives doing the same and passing budgets that, that keep science labs funded. Would you, given all of the situation right now, would you recommend research science as a career path to someone who's interested in this? It oh. seems like it might be kind of a hard field to that, that's, get into right now. That's a really, really difficult question. So in the past, I would have said unconditionally, if you want to be a scientist, go into it. Now, I hesitate a little bit because I realize how difficult funding is. And that's really a shame because we have so many smart people uh, wanting to go into science. But when they see that the professors are struggling to get grant funding just to keep their labs open, a lot of them are actually turned away. So I, I think actually this is, this is hugely important. Um, there's a lot of talent in this country. And I think if we don't keep supporting science the way we have traditionally since World War II, say, I think we're going to lose that edge to other countries that are pouring massive amounts of money into, into research. Oh. Well, do you, are there some major challenges for biomedical research in the near and, and even distant future that you see? Sure. There's, um, we still haven't really capitalized on the Human Genome Project to its full extent. So that was a, an example of a, a, a big federally funded project that that had a huge economic impact. 
um, and uh, we're still learning about um, the human genome and tracking diseases to um, their genetic causes and then trying to use that information to, to generate personalized um, medicine. So personalized medicine is, is the future. Um, people will go into the doctor's office and the first thing will happen is they'll get um, a sample taken and their whole genome will be sequenced and we'll have a profile, be able to tell what drugs would likely work in, in certain cases for, for either cancers or other diseases. So personalized medicine, I would say computer brain interfaces are just being developed now. Um, so first of all, with our aging population, it, it's pretty clear that we have to develop treatments for things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and diseases that tend to be uh, hit the elderly more. And there's, there's this, a lot that lays ahead. <laughs> My guest has been Upstate's Dr. Steve Haynes, a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poet Anne Sutera Botash is a professor of pediatrics at the Golisano Children's Hospital in Syracuse, New York. She is also an outspoken advocate for children and a nationally recognized expert witness in cases involving child abuse. Her poem, Taking the Stand, illustrates how a grand jury receives evidence of such abuse, not wanting to believe such behavior is possible from the child's own family. Taking the Stand Reasonable cause to believe. These words admonish and command twelve peers and more, proclaimed in marker on hanging whiteboard behind the witness stand. Grand jury job defined. A hearing to determine trial, a process of the law, requires voice behind a wooden rail as evidence is laid bare. The sworn expert, nothing but truth to those unblinking eyes and straight backs, her steady hand on worn Bible, stethoscope jammed in a pocket, khaki pants, jeans, pink sweater, plaid shirt, heels and tailored suit, the jurors breathe in rows and tap uneasy fingers on their knees. She turns and pens the lesson, marking around the phrase, behold a baby bone. A squeak of fracture, underlined, evokes wet eyes in one or two. An arrow here, an arrow there, she teaches. This broken piece meant legs were flailing, and this blood right here? She thinks, so sorry, baby passed away. You jurors, please stay with me. She scribbles the untellable. She knows the lies we choose, not the tooth fairy, Santa Claus, childhood. We accept not mother, not father. Biology says so, species survival and all. We believe. Love conquers anger and crazy. Minds cling to fairy tales of invisible villains who crept to the crib. The expert thumps the marker. A fist has wrapped the ribs and squeezed and crushed. The pink sweater cringes and fidgets. Khaki pants man chews his lip. 
heels and suit dabs at eyes. The expert says the crying stopped. Cause enough, believe. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us next week when we hear about a saliva test that can diagnose concussions and we learn about the value of macrobiotic diets. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.